Hey everyone, I'm Jordan Mello and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by reaching and enabling people of all ages and nations to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what we're about to hear. Hey Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us. Welcome to week two in this incredible new series out of the book of Acts, Adventures with the Holy Spirit. Now, we started last week, and maybe you were with us, maybe uh, you weren't, but we started uh, hearing Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, writing to a guy named Theophilus. So it's a real personal conversation. And we took some time to understand, well, who is this Theophilus guy? There's a lot of, um, debate's too strong, conversation about who he might be. A lot of people think he was a upper middle class or really wealthy Roman citizen checking out Christianity. In other words, the guy, you know, wore a lot of Louis Vuitton and Gucci and had a pretty good life, and Luke's interacting with him. A lot of other people say, well, he's not just wealthy. Actually, because of the language that Luke uses, it feels like more of a formal title. So a lot of people think Theophilus actually was a Roman official, probably a high Roman official, and Luke's writing, uh, writing to him to either convince him of the Christian faith or tell him as a Roman official why the Christian faith is good, wonderful, not dangerous, historically rooted, and should not be persecuted. Other people are like, actually, no, Theophilus was a non-Jewish Christian who had met Jesus and either was wavering and wondering if the true Christ, the Christian faith was true and historically rooted, or actually was starting to shrink back and go quiet in his faith because of real persecution. Now, no matter who Theophilus is, what's amazing about that is this, this allows all of us to access accurate information, to see how the faith is historically rooted, and it speaks to all of us. So if you're a skeptic here today, you're not sure if you believe any of this, uh, this is a great conversation and series for you. If you are a seeker or spiritual or belong to another faith, this is a really intriguing conversation for you. If you're a brand new Christian, this is going to help you begin to understand more and more of the family you're part of. If you're a long-term follower of Jesus, this is going to ground you in hope and help you to move forward. So all of us can access this well. We all can be Theophilus from a different direction. Okay, let's pick up where we were last week. The Holy Spirit adventure had begun. Jesus is physically alive, raised from the dead, and he had promised his followers that they needed to wait in Jerusalem and pray because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is going to be poured out and each one of them would receive him permanently. And he said this really, really radical statement in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit lights upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, uh-oh, Samaria, uh-oh, the ends of the earth. See, what he begins to do right up front is wild. He basically says, this is not just a Jewish thing. This is a global thing. And I'm going to actually send you to people you hate. Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were considered dogs and half-breeds spiritually. They were, they were avoided, let alone the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, oh, 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 see, I'm starting a new thing here. And actually, it's a real old thing that got lost, and we're going to do it again. So what happened? Well, they obeyed. They waited in Jerusalem, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and nothing, and nothing. And then suddenly, on the day of Pentecost, it takes place. Let me read the summary, actually, from the message. When the Feast of Pentecost came, this is Acts 2, they were together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, like a gale force. No one could tell where it was coming from. It filled the whole building. 
Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks. They started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from the whole known world. When they heard the sound, they came running. And when they heard, one after another, they heard their own mother tongue being spoken. Everyone was thunderstruck. They could not for the life of them figure out what was going on. And they kept saying to each other, aren't those Galileans? How come we're hearing them talk in our various mother tongues? Their heads were spinning. They couldn't make head or tail of it. They talked back and forth, confused. What's going on here? And some people joked and said, ah, they're drunk on cheap wine. Okay, that's where we ended last week. So now we're at the moment what's going to be said. What's the explanation for this crazy thing that no one can now avoid? Is it God? Is it the devil? Is it some mass form of hysteria? Is this some con job? Is this exaggeration for effect? Too many tequila shots last night? Or even maybe, uh uh-oh, this morning, too much hummus that went sour? What is this? Verse 14, Acts chapter 2. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised their voice. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Okay, so Peter stands. Now, just before we hear Peter give the very first Christian sermon in history... Do you know his story? Or do you remember his story? Uh, Peter was a fisherman from the northern shore of Galilee, from the backwater, basically, of his own country. This is like the, oh, the armpit of Israel, they would say. But interestingly, Israel at this time was considered the backwater and the nothing of the Roman Empire. So really, Peter's a nothing from a nothing region, from a country that's considered by the elite nothing. Flyover people is the rude way we say it today. He's not formally educated in any way. And a lot of people wonder, too, if Peter had zealot overtones. No, the zealot movement 2,000 years ago was a violent, religious, underground movement of Jews trying to kill and take out the Romans. Jewish people, a lot of them them thought of them as freedom fighters. The Romans and other Jews considered them religious terrorists. Now, Peter had been the loudest and had been the most committed and the most powerful. He had crashed and burned in the most public of ways. But Peter was the first one who actually got all of it right first. Remember Peter's confession. This happens in Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some of them are saying you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah. Others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. So this man, with all his good and all his bad and all his complicated, is the one that God chooses to help the world. And he's the first to fully understand and confess Jesus. Actually, Jesus in Matthew 16 says, You didn't discern this. God even told you this. Now, he was also at all the miracles, water to wine, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, dealing with demons and legion, giving of the Sermon on the Mount, and he was always, of course, at the transfiguration. Think about this. Peter had seen more than any other Jew in history up to this point. At the Mount of Transfiguration, him and two others literally see Moses alive and there, and Elijah there, and Jesus the Messiah glorified, and the physical glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God in one place, and God the Father's voice. He's in the inner circle of Jesus, and yet with all that incredible background, he also is the one who publicly falls the most and painfully rejects Jesus. Just after the Passover moment, what we now call the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or Communion, 
Jesus says right to his face. You can read this in Mark 14. I tell you the truth. Today, yes, even tonight, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times, Peter insisted emphatically. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I will never disown you. I will die instead of doing that. Look at me, Jesus. Look how committed I am. Look what I've given up already. Look what I've done. I gave up my dad's business. I left all my security. Remember what I've said to you and about you. Look at me, look at me, look at me. But oh, as we all know in life, passion and purpose and boldness and courage don't always translate to faithfulness. This guy is so committed that actually when Judas, who betrays Jesus, brings a mob and some religious soldiers to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter takes out a sword and cuts one of the guy's ears off. And yet just a few hours later, Peter's vain, violent, boastful expressions actually end up with, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus, I don't know Jesus. See, Peter and Judas, interestingly, walked down the same path, but hope was the difference. So Peter after the physical resurrection of Jesus, has a moment with Jesus. He restores him, makes him the primary leader of the new church, and that's this Peter who's speaking. God took a nothing in the world's eyes and showed him love, showed him boldness, showed him holiness, showed him life, gave him a second chance, and his story becomes one of hope. And now this guy, with all that history, he preaches the first sermon. Fellow Jews, verse 14. All of you who are neighbors, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now, I didn't know this, maybe you don't, but the first meal at this time in this culture is 10 a.m. So Peter says sarcastically, almost half-jokingly, look, bro, we're not drunk. You know we're all not drunk. We're all Jews here and Jewish converts, right? Hello, how in the world are you all missing this? What's happening right in front of your face right now is what for generations we as a people have prayed for and hoped for. Our God promised this and you're missing it in the first three minutes? I mean, God said this to Isaiah. God said this to Ezekiel. God said this uh, to Joel. There'd be a large outpouring of the Spirit on many of us. We'd be formed into a new community, young men, old men, young women, older women. He says, let me remind you. And then what he does right here is he quotes Joel chapter 2. In the last days, verse 17, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And then he says in verse 21, everyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right. Hey, this is really interesting. I don't know, Sanctus, did you just see this? We talked about this in the year 2021-2022 when we walked systematically through the book of Revelation together. The last days aren't just now. We've been in the last days since the time of Jesus. Last days in the Bible means the last run, the last part of history. We as Christians do not believe in the myth of non-ending progressive evolutionary history. We believe there's a beginning and we believe there's an end. And since Jesus has come and gone, and since the Holy Spirit is now given by the living Jesus, we've been living in the end times for 2,000 years. One of the signs that we live in the last times, the last days, is God has placed His Spirit in people like us permanently. Now, the image that Peter's quoting from Joel 2 in Acts 2 
is really powerful if you read it. It's sort of like the image is this. There's a desert-like condition, and there's no rain. And suddenly, and this happens in deserts, there's a short season where there is a torrential downpour, and the parched and barren and broken and filled with death desert suddenly, overnight, blooms to life because of this torrential rain. And this is what Peter's saying. The same with us. We, as human beings, are broken, barren, parched, and dead spiritually, and the rain that brings everything back to life is the Spirit of God. Okay, now why is this such a big deal? Well, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given four moments and seasons. He was given by God selectively, occasionally, to prophets, to kings, priests, and prophetesses. But now, it says in Joel and in Ezekiel and many other places, the Holy Spirit will be given to anyone who meets the Messiah permanently. Age, gender, uh, age, gender social status, education, economic levels, they're not just disappearing, but they don't matter in the sense that God gives His Spirit permanently to anyone who trusts in the Messiah. Now, the audience are all basically Orthodox Jews. They'd know all the references, and they would ask, well, yeah, and yet we've got all the promises, and we're followers of Moses, and we're obeying the law, and so what are we missing? And Jesus is like, oh, this is what you're missing. Jesus is what you're missing. Do you want to understand what's happening? Do you want to translate what's happening? Do you understand how you get this? Okay, verse 22, men of Israel. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, because by the way, Jesus is a very common name, lots of Jesuses. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So Jesus of Nazareth, first of all, was a man, a real living man, not a ghost, real deal. You heard about him, and here's the truth. All sorts of you in this crowd... You saw him. You saw what he did. I did and so did you. Yeah, yeah, Jesus was a man, but this man was accredited by miracles. So let's all be honest about this. Jesus healed and delivered with an authority we have never seen. Jesus would walk up to blind people who could not see, touch their eyes, and suddenly they see everything. There were people who were deaf their whole life or became deaf. He touched their ears. Suddenly they can hear. There were people who were mute. They actually had no ability to speak. He puts his hands on them or says something, and suddenly they're talking. There were people who were bleeding for over a decade, medically, nothing to be done. Doctors couldn't. He, he's walking, someone touches him, and the bleeding just stops. Listen, we saw him time and time again walk up to people who were demonized and possessed by demons, and they just left when he spoke, and they had their right mind. I mean, Jesus brought people back from the dead, like four days in the tomb, smelling, and he called them forth, and they come back to life. Listen, we saw this. Jesus walks into places where there are diseases that are unbelievably dangerous because they can't be contained, like leprosy. And Jesus walks up and touches lepers. And not only does the leprosy actually disappear, but their noses and their, eye, like their ears and their fingers and toes grow back. Like, we can't deny this, everyone. You can't dismiss this. All these signs, though, all these healings, all these power gifts were evidence that God is among us and the kingdom of God is here. The powers of the coming age of the Messiah are now. 
They're acting like flares and signs and tastes. They're the appetizer for the epic meal that's coming. They evidence what the future is. Of course, we have the end of the, the book, so of course, all the signs of Jesus and even all the signs he keeps doing through the church today are pointing to Revelation 21. He'll wipe every tear from their eye. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order has passed away. Okay, so Peter's not done. He's not done pointing to Jesus. And he doesn't just point to his real humanity and not just to his miracles. He pulls back the curtain and says, verse 20, 23, this man, Jesus, was handed over to y'all, to you, by God's set purpose and God's set foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Jesus, Jesus' life and his coming to earth and his death was God's plan all along. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Romans and some of the religious leaders and a whole group of you listening to me, and even me, I denied him, got him killed. Oh, yeah, they said he was guilty of treason against Caesar because he was the king of the Jews. And, oh, that's right, our religious leader said it was blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God and could forgive sins. And, and they thought they were in charge and you thought you were in charge. But, oh, no, no, y'all got outplayed. This was God's plan all along. Uh, Paul later would just basically summarize Peter's message here in Romans 3.25. God presented Christ, the Messiah, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. Let what Peter preached and Paul wrote sink in. God gave Jesus over. Before the beginning of time, God within himself decided to give himself for our sakes. Salvation that is free and accessible cost heaven everything. God gave Jesus up, God gave Jesus over to deal with our sin. Good Friday, the torture, the terrible events, the execution, the inappropriate death or murder of Jesus from a human perspective was the plan of God to bring deliverance to the world. Now, I know a lot of people have not accepted the Christian message or walked away because they're like, that sounds like child abuse to me. Some horrific father being his son. No, no, no. Jesus is equal with the father. Jesus was like, I'm all in. Of course I want to come. I love when John Piper said this years ago, if God was not just, there would have been no demand for his son to suffer and die. If God was not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is, of course, both just and loving. Therefore, his love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. Oh, and if you haven't kept the, caught the scandal and the beauty of that in this moment, do you notice that God does everything for us within himself? justice, and love. Uh, back to verse 23. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Peter is speaking to a vast group, which included many people that had watched Jesus' miracles, heard him taught, talk, and also were involved in calling for his crucifixion. Yet, the implication spreads wider than this crowd. The Bible teaches that every human being is guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. In that very first Christian message, all people are called out and our condition is not downplayed at all. I love the next verse. All the statements, all the sentences passed by human leaders, all the decisions of the human courts, all that was carried out by Pilate and the Roman occupation, all the religious condemnation and wrong preaching and action is now rejected, reversed, and rescinded. 
but God. I know there are memes on this all the time where someone says, but God, and repeats it 20 times, but really, but God. But God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing Jesus from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold of Jesus. Let me just do this. This is physical resurrection, not resuscitation. This is physical resurrection, not zombification. This is physical resurrection, not we stole the body and we're hiding it. This is physical resurrection, not mass hysteria and mass hallucination. This is physical resurrection. This is not spiritual ghost stuff. This is not the walking dead. Resurrection is an all or nothing deal. You got to catch this again. Christians unashamedly root ourselves in history and declare it's not just myth. We don't run from history because we believe the resurrection is an actual, provable, accessible historical event. Our whole movement is based on the idea that Jesus was really here historically, was really killed historically, was really dead, really physically rose from the dead. And when I was reading this years ago, I didn't, I didn't catch this till a bit later, but it is so awesome. See the word agony. It says up there, freeing him from the agony of death. The word agony in the original language means birth pains, like contractions. I mean, this will preach all day long. Basically, this is what is being declared. Death was in labor and could not hold back the delivery of Jesus. Like, all the things. At this point, there would have been great confusion in this Orthodox Jewish audience. They, of course, have been taught their whole lives the Messiah would never suffer. Uh, the Messiah would show up and restore the grand political religious kingdom and win. Cleanse the temple, destroy all false priests, restore the priests that were right to the right position, restore Israel's national boundaries, destroy the Romans, restore the glory of David. And I'm not saying this to be political or, or be a jerk, but like when Trump started saying, let's make America great again, that's a great summary statement of what Orthodox Jews believed. He's going to come and make Israel great again. So to hear that the Messiah, the guy who's going to save us and destroy our enemies and burn all the garbage away and make us the epicenter of the universe, ethnically, politically, fill in the blank, is going to suffer is like, as one person said, it's like saying, oh, I can fry ice. And then Peter comes along and says, whoa, 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 whoa. When did we as Jews start thinking this wasn't supposed to happen to the Messiah? David, our greatest king, the man after God's own heart, wrote all those psalms, the one that God's promise was his line and kingdom would never end and change the world. He predicted the suffering of the Messiah, right? I mean, have we not all read and memorized Psalm 16, he'd say to the audience? I saw the Lord, all was before me. Because he's at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope. Why? Verse 27. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made it known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter's like, hold on, hold on. David wrote this. David was a prophet. David was a king. David was our best poet. David was the great warrior. And David's dead, right? I mean, we can all walk to his tomb. Want to do a tour? It's just down the street. 
And obviously David's speaking about someone else. David was abandoned by God to death. He's dead. And his body experienced rotten worms, just like the rest of us will, like he decayed. So the question is, who in his family line did this happen to? My fellow Israelites, 29. I can tell you confidently that our patriarch, David, died and was buried and his tomb is here till this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on that throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he would not be abandoned to the realm of dead, nor his body see decay. Jesus fits the pattern. He's the fulfillment of the prophecy. Jesus was dead, but was not abandoned to the dead. Jesus died, but his body did not see decay. He's alive. He is in the line of David. He is the throne of David. This is what we all need to see. God, verse 32, has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Day one, Peter says, this is real. This actually happened. This is not invented. This is not some grand conspiracy or a lie. This is not borrowed myth. And we hear that claim in 2023. And a lot of us as modern people go, whoa, 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 John, come on. Come on, come on, come on. It's 2023. You know, they didn't have iPhones and they didn't have the internet. And we, they didn't have psychology and science and forensics. And so, you know, like ancient people are dumb and stupid and gullible and they just believe any sort of myth and lie. Stop it. That's not true, everyone. Like, let's all grow up in 2023. Talk to any historian at any university with their salt and they will tell you ancient people are not stupid. Actually, ancient people are quite smart. This is what they call chronological snobbery. Uh, Tim Keller was reflecting on why he as a, as a person and then as a leader and intellect and pastor, believe this was true. And one of the things he said, he says, look, um, he says, I read another book that really helped me. And he said, in his landmark book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, a guy named Richard Buckingham, which by the way, is an incredible book, marshals so much historical evidence to demonstrate that the time the gospels were being written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there were numerous well-known living eyewitnesses to Jesus's teaching and life events. They committed them to memory. They remained active in public and in the church throughout their lifetime. And they served as ongoing sources and guarantors of truth of those accounts. And he shows, as a historian, how in the Gospels even themselves, the Gospel writers specifically name multiple eyewitnesses to assure the readers of the account's authority and authenticity. In other words, if you wanted to invent a huge lie, you wouldn't name people that were all still living that you could go interview. But they do it all the time, again and again and again. And the Gospels weren't written 100, 200, 300 years later, like some wild scholars want to say. We're real close to the original moment. Peter keeps preaching. Jesus oh, is exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus has received from the Father, that's I am, that's Yahweh, that's Elohim, that's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus from the Father has received the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. This is like, oh man, I can't even preach this well. The scandal of this. Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, who some people are like, we're not even sure what Mary's deal with is, is now at the right hand of God. We talked about this last week. The right hand in the Bible is the place of all authority, all power. So when a king extended his right hand or the scepter, it could be life, death, blessing, war. 
It's the place and sign of ultimate decision. And Peter, a Galilean fisherman with his thick backwater accent that everyone dismissed, is now declaring that Jesus, who had been executed, by the way, by the Romans 53 days earlier, is now sitting at God's right hand and has supremacy over the whole universe? Are you joking me? Oh, and oh, by the way, and Jesus has been given the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is the one pouring out the Holy Spirit in this crazy moment. Then the implication comes home. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus, whom you all crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, here it is. This is the first confession of our faith. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember that quote back from Joel 2 that Peter refers to? It's in verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, years ago, when I was thinking through this passage, I found this incredible quotation by a guy named David Gooding, and he said, it's so good, they murdered God's son, he offered them his spirit. They cru crucified the second person of the Trinity, he offered them the third. They threw God's son out of the vineyard in hope of inheriting the vineyard themselves. He now is inviting them to receive God's spirit, not just in their vineyard, but actually in their very hearts. That's why our God is so incredible. Well, in this moment, of course, the words hung in the air. What will happen next? Mob violence? Dragging now Peter and others in front of the Sanhedrin in another call for either stoning to death or crucifixion? Would they walk away? Would they be dismissed? Yeah, too many tequila shots, boys. Like, what is it going to be? Will it be accepted? Would holy fire start breaking out across this crowd? Well, when the people heard this, they were cut to their hearts. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, cut to the heart. And some of you started singing some song from the 80s. Come on back. When you get cut, I, it's interesting. I, I got cut yesterday. I didn't do this for the sermon, by the way. A glass broke, and I was picking up glass in a sink, and it cut me. Though it's small, when you get cut, you, you feel it. Now, this is what they're feeling, though. Can I beg everyone's attention, please? No matter where you are in the world, no matter, this, this matters. They're not just feeling, as one person said, anxiety or an awareness. I don't feel right. Something's wrong here. They're actually looking in the mirror, and they now know they're complicit. Their guilt. I have personally done something wrong. You think about it. They suddenly realize that they have actually murdered, killed, executed the one they've been waiting for. And the only person who can forgive sins is him. So who do you turn to now? Or are you just waiting to be judged on Judgment Day? You, there is no other court to go to. Oh. See, in this moment, they realized. Hopefully in this moment, some of you are realizing. We are so far from God. There is nothing we can do to match His law, His holiness, when we actually see our sin, when we see that every one of us is complicit in God, God the Son's murder, our sickness, our separation, we say, is there anyone who's even willing to help? Peter replied, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How do we get out of this mess? We repent. What does repent mean? 
Repent is not just, oh, I feel anxiety that I've done something bad. Repentance is, I am a sinner. I have assaulted the holy God. I am turning from that, admitting my sin, and saying I'm guilty and asking for forgiveness. I'm doing a 180. Faith is that you put your trust in something or someone else to do the covering. It's one thing to know that Jesus existed. It's another thing to personally ask Jesus to cover what you've done. Faith is not blind leaping in the dark. Faith is informed trust in a person you get to know. Repentance, faith, and baptism. Baptism is the outward symbol of the inward decision. Like I say all the time, it's like putting on a wedding ring. This doesn't make you married. It's the public declaration, you are married. See, when you repent, this is so cool, and you put your faith in Jesus alone, he gives you, he baptizes you in the Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit is not a secondary thing that you get when you pray laws. It happens to every Christian on earth that says yes to Jesus. You are sealed by the Spirit at that moment. Peter keeps going, verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and even for all those people who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. I read that this week again, I was like, wow, wow, wow. I gotta just pause here. Corrupt generation, really? I mean, Peter's speaking in the middle of the center of the world, Jerusalem, right? During a religious gathering full of really good, nice people who gave up time and money to actually come and worship the true living God, and they're doing all these good religious acts, and, and Peter says, you're all corrupt. Being religious, being sincere doesn't save you. It's not what you do, it's who you know that makes the difference. Well, those who accepted, and those means not all, those that accepted Peter's message were baptized. 3,000 added to their number that day. In one day, when the church was born, within hours, 3,000 people from the whole known world joined. And just so no one misunderstands, after they repented, after they believed Jesus was the Messiah, after they believed he was the Son of God, after they actually said, Jesus, would you forgive me, after they became disciples or Christians, then they got baptized. Baptism does not save you. It is evidence of something that's already happened. They're not trusting in a new moral system. They're not trusting in a moral code. They're not trusting in their religious actions. They're trusting in a loving, living person. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lord who came to seek and save the lost. Why does this sermon matter? Okay, here it is. Ready? This is the summary of our faith. For the seekers among us, the skeptics among us, for all of us, this is it. Spelled out, clear as day. Jesus sums up the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. Jesus was a real man whose life was marked by miracles. Jesus was actually crucified. It was God's plan all along to do this. Jesus really was physically risen from the dead. Jesus is king. Jesus is reigning right now. This is Jesus' world. All of us are in sin. Every human being is corrupt. Even the most religious person is guilty. All humans need a savior. Jesus is not just a man, though he is a man. He is also God in flesh. If you accept Jesus, have faith in Jesus, you get the greatest gift, that it's the Holy Spirit. You'll be forgiven of your sins. You get to join God's real family and movement, no matter your history or background. Resurrection is guaranteed. God who is holy, God who is love, God is not silent, 
And this God who's loving and holy and has not remained silent has reached out. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's not just good news. That's not just some news. That's the news. That's the best news. We don't shrink, by the way, from the resurrection being the place of validation. And we do believe in exclusive claims and truth. Yes, all of us live in this postmodern, multicultural, pluralistic moment that teaches us truth is subjective, or many of us deny the absolute understanding of truth. Most believe truth, of course, is just discovered through experience or culture. It's my truth for a time, but the Christian faith says no. We're not going to skirt around the issue of sin, spiritual corruption, and death. Peter's message is that we all actually know something is wrong, and something is wrong in the human family, but spiritual anxiety is not enough. The feeling of being off is not enough. We have to admit, I'm guilty and I repent. We as Christians are pessimistic about human nature, but we're incredibly excited, blown away, hopeful about the love and grace of God by the Holy Spirit that shows us Jesus, that can transform you from the inside out. <laughs> the Spirit of God can take the most hostile, barren, desert-like life and make it bloom. For you who have not yet met Jesus, or you are cultural Christians, or you're from another faith or spiritual, I found this um, really intriguing, punchy thought from the 70s. One person said, the question is not, shall I repent? Far, uh, for that is beyond doubt. The question is, shall I repent now? when it may save me, or will I put off my repentance to eternity when my repentance will then become punishment? Whoa. Here's what Paul wrote later, he who killed Christians and attacked us and then became one of us. At Romans 10, 9, this is to all of you who have not yet said yes. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Just like Peter preached 2,000 years ago, I'm now preaching now with the same spirit he had. And the same Holy Spirit that was speaking to that crowd then is speaking to this crowd now, to you now. If you have never accepted Jesus, if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, eternal life, and all that, this is what you need to do right now. Be cut to the heart. Admit you're guilty. Say, dear Lord Jesus. Pray this out loud in your heart, but just say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I turn from running my own life and now I ask you to run it. Be the Lord of my life. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I trust and follow you as Lord and Savior. This is what I pray in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. Last thought, um, Peter knows our tendency of being embarrassed or wanting to, not, to deny what is true. If anyone knows it, Peter knows it. The Spirit of God reminds you as a Christian, if you're hearing this message today or days or months or decades later, don't back down, he cries. Don't turn, don't be embarrassed, don't be reluctant, don't be humiliated into silence or compromise. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the life, the death, and the physical resurrection of Jesus and the offering of forgiveness of sins alone. Boldly proclaim the good news. Because if Peter 
could be transformed by Jesus and be used, so can you. So can all of us. Father and Son, send the Spirit. Open people's eyes to Jesus. Father and Son, send the Spirit. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. Father and Son, send the Spirit. Help us and give us opportunities to speak, to point, to encourage people to meet Christ. We pray this as a church. We all said in Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. God bless your week and we'll see you next time.